0: Friends, we continue on in the longest sermon series, at least to date, in this church's life, through the book of Romans. We come today, the fifth of 48 planned messages from this book, and we begin Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, especially verses 6 to 11, is a watershed text. It has been said that you leave this section of scripture a Protestant or a Romanist and that there is no middle ground. So that's my introduction. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be looking today at Romans chapter 2 verses 1 to 16. As you are turning, listen very carefully here for just a moment. Critical for our understanding is something that we considered last week. That Paul begins an argument in chapter 1 and verse 18 that he does not conclude until chapter 3 and verse 20. In other words, our verses today, Romans 2, 1 to 16, are in the middle of a cohesive argument that Paul is making. That will be critical For our understanding of this passage, particularly several of the verses contained within it. Okay. Everybody good? We ready? Let's look to the word. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word. We thank the the Lord in particular for his law and his gospel. My plan today is similar to the outline from last week. I want to make our way through the text. I want us to consider the text in four sections. I will make those sections of verses plain to us as we go through. And then after that, I have four additional points for our consideration. So this is a four by four kind of day today. It's four by four kind of weather outside too while we're on that topic. So the text in four sections. We'll begin section one verses one to three. Section one. Verses 1 to 3. As I mentioned last week, it does seem quite clear that Paul's gaze pivots more directly toward Jews beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. Gentiles were in focus in chapter 1 and verse 18 to 32. But Paul's gaze pivots to the Jews more pointedly in chapter 2 and verse 1. Or at a minimum, it pivots to those who have God's law and know of God. He writes to people, again primarily Jews, who are passing judgment on those, Gentiles, who practice the things he's just outlined. He writes to people, to use John Calvin's language, who, quote, dazzle the eyes of men by displays of outward sanctity, and even think themselves to be accepted before God as though they had given him full satisfaction. Close quote. We'll come back to that part. Again, remember what Paul is doing. He is establishing the universal sinfulness of mankind. We'll probably refer to this verse at a number of points, but you can put your eyes on chapter three and verse nine. Don't just take my word for it, that this is what he's doing. He is establishing the universal sinfulness of mankind in these early chapters Chapter 3 and verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that what? All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's what he's doing. Back to chapter 2 in these early verses. Paul indicates these people that he's writing of He indicates that in doing what they're doing, passing judgment on people who practice these things that he's outlined in Romans chapter 1, all of these various kinds of corruption and sin and wickedness, in passing judgment on those people, the ones of whom and to whom he's writing condemn themselves because they practice the very same things. They think that they don't, but they do. Paul's word is effectively this, you judge people who practice such things and yet do them yourself, and do you think, given that that's true of you, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's the argumentation. You are worthy of condemnation because you are guilty of the very things for which you condemn other people. You don't allow men to escape your judgment. Do you think that you will escape God's? How will it go for you when you stand before the judgment, not of men, but of a heavenly tribunal? So it's verses one to three. Section two, verses four and five. Verses four and And five, Paul goes on. Or do you just presume? Like, do you think it's going to go well for you? It won't. Or are you just presuming then upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that that very kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But as it is. You have hard and impenitent hearts. That word impenitent means unrepentant hearts. And you're storing up wrath for yourselves for the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For the day when God will judge the world on principles of righteousness. It's a massive question for us in our understanding. How are these people doing all of this? Track with me. How are these people doing all this? How exactly are they presuming upon God's kindness and patience? How are they impenitent? How are they unrepentant? How is it that they are hard of heart? How is it that they are storing up wrath for themselves? It is that in the context of Paul's argument. You can see this like I can. It is that they pass judgment on other people for what they do, not realizing that they themselves do the very same things. It is that they do not see their own guilt, as was said earlier, do not see their need for righteousness that they don't have. It is that they think that others are worthy of judgment, but that they themselves somehow are not. It is that they think that they have rendered unto God what will satisfy his judgment. They trust that the benevolence that they've been shown by God is evidence that God is good with them. They think that they will not face the wrath of God based on their own conduct, but that others will face it based on their conduct. To live and to think this way, beloved, is to presume upon the kindness and the patience of God. It is to be unrepentant. And it is to store up wrath for oneself on the day of God's righteous judgment. To put it in just our colloquial vernacular. Paul is busting the chops Of those who think that they're righteous, all while thinking that others are not. Paul says that these people do not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead them to repentance. Now what does that repentance look like in the context of Paul's argument? We can say several things about it. It is to not trust in yourself. It is to despair of your own righteousness. It is to not look to yourself in any way when it comes to your standing before God. It is to acknowledge your sin. To acknowledge the depth of your corruption. It is to confess that you are ruined and bankrupt before the holy God. And it is to look to another who has been righteous for you. See, repentance is a turning. It's a change of mind and it's a turning. And the question, the massive question is a turning to whom? A turning to Christ and away from yourself. Your sin and away from your own notions of your own righteousness. I'm turning to Christ. It's repentance. Section 3. So we've looked at verses 1 to 3. We've looked at verses 4 and 5. We now will look at verses 6 to 11. Third section of our text today. Everything that we have considered up until now makes verse 6 hit that much harder. You're trusting in yourself that you're righteous in God's sight, while others, sinners that they are, have no shot. In reality, you have a hard and unrepentant heart and are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse six, because here's the reality. He will render to each one according to his works. To which the thoughtful listener says, well, brother, close the book. Let's go home. It's over. That's not good news. Not to a son or daughter of Adam. He will render to each one according to his works. Verses 7 and 8. Paul goes on further to unpack and explain God's righteous judgment. He will give, verse 7 and 8, He will give eternal life to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. But there will be wrath and fury for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness and again in verses 9 and 10 there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek all people but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek all people verse 11 for God shows no partiality He will judge all men on the same principles, and they are principles of righteousness. As Charles Hodge wrote, quote, the question at God's bar, and by bar we're talking about a courtroom term here, the question at God's bar will be not whether a man is a Jew or a Gentile, whether he belongs to the chosen people or to the heathen world, but whether he has obeyed the law. There is no curve, there are no favors, no one is grandfathered in, nobody will slip in the side door. Jew, Gentile does not matter. Section 4 of our text today. We're going to come back to verses 6 through 11 later. Section 4, verses 12 to 16. Paul continues with his argument. Here's effectively what he's going to say in these verses. Those who have the written law will be judged by it. And those who only have the law written on their hearts, which is everyone else, will be judged by that law. Pretty simple. But let's look at it. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, i.e. Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, i.e. Jews and some others, will be judged by the law. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. We're going to think more about this next week. It is not simply that one has the law that matters. It is that one does it. Right? As it is written. The one who does them, who does the things written in the law, will live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5, cited various places by Jesus and Paul. As it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Deuteronomy 27.26, cited by Paul in Galatians 3. Picking up with Paul here in verse 14. He says, and then when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. How so? In doing this, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. We've thought about this before, saints. The moral law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? You're tracking. The moral law of God is written into man from the creation. That's what he's saying here. He goes on. All the while, their consciences, the Gentiles' consciences, bear witness to the law. You see this in the world in which we live all the time. People are haunted by the realities of the moral law. They They would never call it that. Their conflicting thoughts both accuse them and excuse them as it pertains to the last day when God judges the secrets of all men. On the one hand, they're haunted and know they're guilty. On the other, they figure it's going to be okay. We see this all around us. Paul, again, there at the end of verse 16, mentions the day when God will judge all men. He mentioned it in verse 5. He mentions it in verse 16 of our text. In verse 5, he referred to it as the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In verse 16, he refers to it as that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So on this, the world, you've heard me say this many times today, the world will be judged on principles of righteousness. We're going to keep thinking about what that means. And by the way, Jesus will be the judge. It's not the Father who sits on the seat of judgment. It is the Son. John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Acts 17, 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There that is again. How's he going to do that? By a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man, who's going to judge the world from the dead. His name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus, who is the Christ, to be more precise. So question for us, we keep hearing this whole business of God judging the world in righteousness. What does that mean? What is righteousness anyway? Righteousness, properly and tightly defined, is living in accord with the law. Righteousness means keeping the law. That's critical for our understanding. Even You can look it up in Merriam-Webster. The primary definition of righteousness is acting in accord with divine or moral law. That's in the dictionary. So for the world to be judged in righteousness and for the secrets of men to be judged by Christ Jesus means the following. In the judgment, last day, every person's works will be laid bare. And every person will either be found righteous or unrighteous. That is to say, every person will either be found to have kept the law or to have broken the law. Period. That is what it means that God will judge the world on principles of righteousness and that Christ himself will be the judge. All men, works laid bare, secrets made plain and based upon that will either be found righteous, a law keeper, or unrighteous, a law breaker. So this brings us to the second portion of our time together today, where we're going to consider four additional points from our passage. We've considered the text in four sections. We now have four additional points. Number one, point one is a question. I hope that doesn't bother anyone. What is Paul communicating in verses 6 to 11 of Romans 2? What is Paul communicating in verses 6 to 11? Beloved, I I don't know any other way to say this other than this. Things that we're going to consider in these next few moments are as important as anything we could ever consider. Because we often will say that things are a gospel issue, you know, and I know what we mean by that. Or we'll often talk like heaven and hell hang in the balance about things that that's not actually true about. But heaven and hell hang in the balance when it comes to what we're about to consider. And whether or not a sinner like you or me could ever have any hope before the holy God is completely at stake in what we're about to think about. So before I go in and before we go in here, I want to make a few things very plain because I don't want to be misunderstood. Just note these in your mind or if you're writing writing it down, that's fine. Those who have been united to Christ, those who have been saved, will do good works, period. Period. I I want another amen or two. You can give it to me. Amen. Amen obedience here we go next point obedience to the law and good works are good things that all believers are to pursue in Christ full stop amen good we're going to consider all of that later on in this letter Paul's going to go there we're going to talk about obedience and sanctification and union with Christ and all of that the issue please hear this the issue in Romans chapter 2 verses 6 to 11 the issue is justification justification all right. How is it that a person will be found righteous by the Lord in the judgment? How is it that a sinner will ever be found to be a law keeper in the judgment? That is the issue in view in this text. Period. We good. All right. And so to weave works, our works into that equation is devastating. And it is not sound doctrine. Okay. Lest we think that I'm just creating and concocting some kind of boogeyman here. As though there are people who say this, you know, that it's just like make-believe. A prominent, respected New Testament scholar in our day, one of my former professors. A brother in Christ. Writes of Romans 2, 6 to 11. In particular, he drills in on verses 7 and 10. Because verses 7 and 10, as you're going to see, those are the rub. He says that those being described in verse 7 are those who, quote, seek eternal life by consistently persevering in a good work. Those who receive an eschatological reward, that is an eternal reward for good works, will manifest these good works consistently in their lives. He goes on. Since Paul asserts that works are necessary for salvation and also that one cannot be justified by works of the law, it is probable that he did not see these two themes as contradictory. In other words, it's kind of both. Do you hear that? It's kind of both. Salvation is by works, but nobody can be justified by works of the law somehow Paul sees these things as not contradictory. He concludes, in verses 7 and 10, Paul is speaking of Christians who keep the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's his conclusion. That what Paul is arguing for is that those who will be eternally rewarded with life are those who keep the law by the power of the Spirit. There are many who understand that these verses, in verses 7 and 10 specifically, are a reference to the obedience of believers. So two major considerations all under this first point. First thing, is that what Paul is arguing for? Is that what Paul is arguing for? In the context of Romans 1, 18 to three twenty? Is he contending that those who will be eternally saved are those who keep the law by the power of the Spirit? All right, let's think about his argumentation. In verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1, there's the universal indictment. And then, beginning in Romans 2, for the more respectable folk, mostly the Jews, they are guilty of committing the same transgressions for which they pass judgment on other people, all while thinking themselves to be accepted by God. This is unrepentance. God is a righteous judge. He will punish the wicked and reward the good, and he shows no partiality. Pause. Is Paul talking about eternal life on the basis of our obedience? Romans 2 7. Put your eyes on it. To those who by patience in well doing seek. For glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Put your eyes on Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Put your eyes on Romans 2.10. Glory and honor and peace God will give for everyone who does good. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Put your eyes on Romans three twelve. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Romans 3, 9. And then verses 19 and 20 of Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being, no flesh, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul is making this great argument, this great point. It is true. That God is upright, He's a righteous and impartial judge. He will reward those who do good, He will punish those who do evil. The problem is no one is good, which is why by the works of the law, no man will ever be justified. Do you see what he's doing? Second consideration here. This again, it's all under additional point one, all right? Second consideration. Let's talk about the kind of righteousness that will end in eternal life. Let's talk about the kind of righteousness that will end in eternal life. Right now we're talking about righteousness that will merit eternal life. Not righteousness that God will look upon in grace that's half-baked and accept in the Lord Jesus, but righteousness that will, on principles of righteousness, earn life. This conversation begins And frankly, it ends in one place, the judgment seat. It begins and it ends there. As soon as it starts, it's over. Track with me. Who is the one seated on that throne? Consider him. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. That's God the Son, by the way. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, This is Isaiah the prophet, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is the one before whom the mountains melt. And the one before whom the valley split open, the one before whom the earth heaves. He is the one who is so pure that to him, behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm. Who will stand in his judgment? Well, he who walked uprightly and never sinned. He who was righteous and blameless in all his ways. He who never slandered with his tongue. Who never did evil to his neighbor. He who meditated upon the law of God day and night and always lived in perfect accord with it. Let such a one come forward. You see, we would never, I'm not the first to say this, by the way, we would never talk of the righteousness of our works like we do if we were affected with the slightest feeling and the slightest understanding of God's justice. We wouldn't. Could our, as you contemplate him, and as you contemplate this, this judgment, and this justice, this holiness, this righteousness, could our imperfect, albeit sincere, but our imperfect keeping of the law stand on that day? What about our obedience that is mixed with sin? Will it stand in that judgment? Remember, we are talking about justification on principles of righteousness, so don't misunderstand me. God, because he is gracious, will accept and even reward our good works done in Christ by faith. That is grace if I've ever heard of it. That is marvelous and frankly astonishing that he could ever look at us and say, well done, but he will. That's not what we're talking about right now though. We're talking about justification. Righteousness in the judgment. And it is only the perfect, invincible righteousness of Jesus Christ counted to us that will ever stand on that day. It could be no other righteousness. Jesus represents all those who are in him. And united to him, we are dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. And therefore, on that basis, in that judgment, the Lord looks at us and says, righteous, law keeper. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Point two. The header for this one is law and gospel clarity in Romans 2. Law and gospel clarity in Romans 2. So in Romans 2, 6 and following, Paul is expounding the law, not the gospel. Do you understand that? He's expounding the law, not the gospel. He's going to get to the gospel in Romans 3.21. He is making plain the principles of God's justice according to which all men will be judged. That's what he's laying out here. The law teaches both that the wages of sin is death and that the one who keeps its precepts will live by them eternally. So to be clear, the law teaches that the wages of sin is death and that the one who keeps what it says will live forever. And so Paul says unequivocally, God will punish the wicked And reward the righteous. What else would he do? All of this is perfectly consistent with what Paul will soon teach in the letter, that there are none righteous and that there are none who obey the law in such a way that they would thereby be entitled to the eternal life that it promises. And that is why It is precisely a righteousness that has been revealed apart from the law that we need, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What righteousness is that? It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's perfectly consistent. If you're going to rely on works, you better have them. All of them. Perfect ones. If you're going to look To the law for righteousness, you better keep it. Every jot and tittle. You must be a doer of the law. You must satisfy what it demands, which is perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. That's what's required if you're ever going to be justified by the law. I didn't say if you're going to ever be guided by the law. It's a different proposition. Justified by it. This is what Paul is driving home in Romans 1 18 through 320. No one has done this. No one. All are under sin. And so no flesh will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. Point three. I just entitled this one Repentance. Point three, Repentance. Brackets in light of today's text, right? So if if we want, we want to be people, let's just go ahead and acknowledge this right away. The Christian life is a life of repentance from beginning to end. It's not something we do once. It's not something that we do at just punctiliar points and we're good. It's a continual life of repentance, of turning to Christ and turning from ourselves. Constant. But it's good for us in light of passages to think about, all right, what does repentance look like in light of these truths? So if we want to repent of something today, and I trust that we do, Lord, show me the depth of my sin that I may be repentant. May we repent of all of the ways that we trust in ourselves. How about that? May we repent of all of the ways that we trust in ourselves, of all of the ways that we look to ourselves. May we repent of how we ever thought so low of God's law or so low of his holiness that we thought we could bring something to him based upon which he would say righteous. May we repent of that. You want to talk about a perspective or a posture that will change every interaction you have with other people? This is it. We want to walk out of here different than we came in. Amen? Amen. This will do that. If we, think about this, if we were rid of our self-righteousness and pride, what would that do for our relationships? It's unfathomable to think about what that would mean. All of our insecurity, all of our measuring, all of our posturing, the way we walk around like peacocks, you know, with like our righteousness on display. All of our criticalness, all of our nitpicking, all of our taking everything, here's this, taking everything uber personal. Where does that come from? We all look to our own righteousness and parade it around far more than we would ever care to admit. More than we would ever care to admit. We're like little Boy Scouts or like, you know, the Girl Scouts with the sashes. We got merit badges all over those things. And I want everybody to see it. And don't don't question how well I can do one of these things because this badge means a lot to me. I mean, I'm being facetious, but you guys get it. What is the root of all of that? It's looking to ourselves. If we were rid of self-righteousness and pride, how much would that help us to invite and receive correction? That's That's the mark of some mature Like godly stuff in a person's life that you invite and receive correction. If we were rid of our self-righteousness and pride, how much would that help us to lovingly and humbly give correction? I trust this goes without saying. Like when it comes to all of the nonsense that I've been describing about parading our own righteousness around and how we get so offended you know, in our merit badges and stuff, you understand that it is possible to be very and appropriately concerned for holiness and do none of that nonsense. Right? And in fact, holiness is not doing that nonsense often. Imagine if we all took to heart the following things. That we do not have a righteousness of our own. That in and of ourselves, if we're prone to anything, it is error and sin. And that any sanctification, any growth in godliness, any maturity that has occurred in our lives is only a result of the work of God in and through us. He's done it. We don't take any of the credit. That would be something, wouldn't it? That would be something. Imagine what our relationships would be like. So, beloved, as we are doing, do so all the more. Look away from yourself. May we look away from ourselves always and only to Christ. May this make us people who are humble, who invite and receive correction, and who gently and kindly give it. May God grant us soft and repentant hearts. Point four. This is not fancy, nor is it a surprise to you. Consider Jesus Consider his righteousness and his excellencies. What else would we gather to do? Consider his life. Consider what he came to accomplish. In his own words, at his baptism that began his earthly ministry, he said that he came so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. That matters when we're talking about this justification piece. Righteousness in the judgment. He said he came. And it's appropriate that we do this, John Baptize me so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Then there's his temptation. Just like Adam's temptation was many, many millennia before. Tempted by the evil one, the enemy, the adversary, the great accuser of the brethren. But this man, unlike the first one, was successful and victorious. That account is not in the Bible To teach us that we can defeat Satan with the word of God. That is not why it's there. That's a secondary application. The reason it's there is so that we would understand who this man is. He is the new and better Adam. Come to save the hell bound man. Like we sung earlier. He is the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. In the first Adam we fell. The second one we stand. He was tempted in every way as we are. Yet without sin says the scripture. In his own words, during his earthly ministry, he said, I honor my father. He said, I do as the father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the father. Sounds like something we sing often. He kept his father's every word. The law he followed perfectly. He also said, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. I do what my father does, he said. No one ever spoke like this man. No one could ever make such a claim. He said, I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. And then he prayed, father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We read of him that he was made perfect through suffering, Hebrews 2.10. We read that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. And at the end of all of it, what was the father's assessment of him? Well, at his baptism, the father said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, the father said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And after Jesus had lived and died and was buried, what then was the father's verdict? Consider these words. This is the Apostle Peter speaking. Speaking of Jesus. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, says Peter, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What was the Father's verdict? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's his verdict. This Jesus whom you crucified. This is why the scriptures elsewhere testify. About him. About the Christ. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He will be resurrected. Right? He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And then these words. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Later on in this letter to the Romans, Paul will write these words. The free gift is not like the trespass. He's going to compare Adam and Jesus. All of this matters for righteousness, fam. That's why I'm saying it. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift, how often can he say those words? In other words, It is free and it's given as if he could be more clear. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It is only in and on this righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that he accomplished, earned, and achieved, being born under the law to ransom and redeem those who were born under the law. It is only in and on this righteousness, his perfect invincible righteousness that we can stand. We'll think about this more, I'm sure, next week. The rock upon whom we build our house is not our obedience, it is Jesus Christ for us. This is why Paul wrote elsewhere that any gain, any virtue that he had that came from what he did, he considered it to be rubbish. But whatever gain I had, he said, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He's not renouncing his vice. He's renouncing his virtue. I count them as nothing, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's Philippians 3. It sounds just like Romans. Back to Romans 2. This is our kind of soft landing. Okay? Verse 7 of Romans 2. Put your eyes on it. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Beloved, there is one who did that. All of his life. Every minute and in him, eternal life is ours. Put your eyes on verse 10, Romans 2. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek. Well, oh, beloved, there's one who did good. He did, as it comes to, to be known, he did all things well. All things well. And in him, glory and honor and peace is ours eternally. So do you want an encouragement for your living in light of invincible righteousness that's been given to you? You want that? I do. What can we leave here today thinking? I've been given invincible righteousness. Everything has been done. I'm safe. I've been justified on account of Christ. What encouragement do I have for my living? The Apostle John penned these words, Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's a marvelous thought. And then this, and everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who hopes in him this way, purifies himself as he is pure. Motivation for holy living, it comes from being given invincible righteousness by faith in Christ alone. That's what drives us forward in pursuing life according to the law. Not for justification, but because it's good. And it's good for our neighbor and it honors God. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Beloved, that day is coming. And may we live in light of it. May the Lord give us grace. Let's pray.